Hello, hello. Hello. Hey, is that Australia? It is. Oh, I love it. That's my favorite part of doing this, is talking to the bottom of the world. Where's the kitty? Is the kitty around? Um, he's in bed with my son at the moment, but I'm sure oh. he'll appear. Oh my God, that's so cute. Oh, good. I, I like that the kitty can make a, a guest appearance. Well, welcome, welcome. <laughs> Thank you. How's the week been going? Has it been going okay? Um, I'm a bit behind because I've been sick, but hopefully oh. I'm going to get back on track today. Oh, good. And you were working this week, I'm sure. Yeah, I worked all weekend. So, oh uh, yeah, we. And do you work swing shift overnights? What's your What's your ER shift? Um, I usually do the evenings, like uh-huh. till kind of one or two a.m. I think is that what you call a swing shift? Yeah, 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 yeah. Because I I do like one to eleven. Sometimes it's till ten, or but I I don't really like to go much later than that. Honestly, I start to get a little weird. But yeah, yeah it's the in-between shift, but that's the, see, I always say swing shift is the best shift because that's when you see all the crazy stuff during the day, but then you have to manage all that crazy stuff that the specialties have been seeing at night by yourself. <laughs> so, yes. Yeah, bo- both worlds. So I think that's for VTS world. I think that that's perfect. It is. And you do, you still get some sleep, like it's still nighttime when you get home. So Yes. Oh yes. That is also true. See, I would do... <laughs> I did all my studying during like the morning before I went to work because I had to be at work at one. So I would be up at like, you know, eight or nine or something. And then I would study for about an hour, an hour and a half. And then I would go to work. And then nighttime was just a wash. I'm like, nope, that's just not a thing. I can't expect to <laughs> come home and know, remember anything. Yeah. So I, I did it all during like the mornings right before I went. Same with the application and the case reports and everything too. Well, let's see. Let's see if there's any... I, oh, it says manage participants. I'm going to try not to kick anybody off if I click on this thing. Let's see what happens here. Let's see who's here. Oh, there's some people listening. Let's see. Jen, I remember... I think that's Maine. <laughs> I think what Jen is. Oh, my goodness. And Elizabeth is Sweden. So that is something else. Okay. Fabulous. So everybody can hear me okay, I'm assuming. I know some people have their mics off, which is fine but it looks like it's recording, which is also good. So um, I'm going to do about, I'm going to try to stick to like the hour, the hour mark, just because I think that's about as, uh, that's about as much interesting stuff as I have. (laughs) And then we'll see, then we'll see how we, how we do after that. But I'm going to do the same thing because I think it kind of worked well the last time where I'm just going to go through my, um, my two stacks of flashcards that I had on environmental and toxicological emergencies. And then from there, we can jump off to all kinds of stuff. I wrote a case report on a dog that nearly died of heat stroke. So I feel like I had a lot of research that I had to do for that. And that all came up during the environmental emergency stuff. Now, Australia, I'm going to go ahead and guess that you guys see heat stroke down there. Or are those dogs like adapted to it where they can burst into flames and they're fine? They're probably a little bit more adaptive, but we do see it a lot. You do see it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And do they, um, do you see it as like where their temperature gets like over 107, 108, like that type of terribleness? Um, so I'm still Celsius, so I don't oh, know oh. what 107 converts to. Oh my God, I'm going to tell you. Greater than... <laughs> here, 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 I'm going to get my little, watch this. This is, my, this is the magic box I'm asking Google 
Fahrenheit to Celsius. Uh oh, first I have to remember how to spell Fahrenheit, which is, uh, there it is, Fahrenheit to Celsius conversion. So I think 37 is like, is body temperature, right? For, for Celsius, is that true? Um, yeah, 37 to 38. Oh, very good. Okay, so Fahrenheit 107. Oh yeah, here we go. So, so dogs that are like 41, 41, 42. Yeah. 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 We see them hot and then, and then hotter. And you oh. usually hotter, they don't live. Horrible. That's crazy. And what do you find is the most common, I guess maybe since we're talking about this shit, we'll talk about environmental first. So, so what do you find is the most common cause for that in Australia? Um, we get a lot of humidity where I live. So I'm close to Queensland. So it gets really humid. Um, Uh and then it's just, um, all the brachys, cephalics don't cope. Um, And then there's just owner stupidity, you know, if it's a holiday and I'm going to take my dog running, even though it's really hot. Oh, so you do see that where people will actually go out and exert, exert them so that they collapse outside. Oh my God. That is, yes. Do you see a lot of in the cars, like the, the dogs that get kept in the cars and get overheated? No, not very commonly. Isn't that interesting? See, I feel like that's what we see. So, And I think that that's because, if I would have to guess, it's probably because we're not as inherently hot as Australia is. Like, you know, like on the daily, like, you know, our version, when we're, like, it's a joke that in San Francisco, if it gets to like 90, people are are dying and melting in the streets. So, like, I feel like our tolerance level is less, but... If they get because of that, I feel like people leave them in the cars and they go shopping or they go like do something and the dogs in the car for, I mean, even like 15, 20 minutes and they totally overheat. I've seen two dogs die from that type of situation. Yeah. So it's, that, um, it's a pretty big thing over here because it is so hot. You can't leave anything in a car. Oh, I can't. A, That's like right. A cool day. Oh God. And see, and I wonder if it's because of that, that people just kind of inherently know that. And that's why they don't do it versus here. You can almost think that you'd get away with it. Like, you're like, Oh, it's like 80 degrees out. It'll be fine. Yeah. So I tell you what, the, um, the first, uh, the first thing that I remember having to, to go through is these four principles of thermal regulation. And I don't want to do too much repeat because I know that when Heather did her like study session at the very beginning of this, she went over the four, um, these four principles. Uh, but so there's, there's four of them and it's the way that heat is lost from the body. So I remember trying to think of like a, um, like a little anacronym to remember what they were. And I think what I ended up doing was double C-R-E. That was the way that I could remember it because it's convection, conduction, radiation, and evaporation. So I would just remember double C-R-E and then I'd be like, oh yeah, they'll just fill in the blanks. Um, So convection being that it's the heat transfer between skin and moving air or water. So you could, you would guess that, you know, these poor dogs that are sitting in the car, they have no convection, right? Because their heat is not getting off of their skin or moving away from their body at all. Uh, Conduction, that's the heat transfer between skin and uh, objects in contact with skin. So like a good example of this would be like a dog that overheats from conduction would be like, say a dog that's on a heating pad for a dental. Um, that's also a way to get burned, right? But, in, but it also is a way that they can't get away from it. You know when else you see this too? Is um, uh, I would always remember conduction was when you have those cats that are dying of renal failure and they're under the bear hugger, right? Because we're trying to 
heat them up, but the cats don't want it. So they start moving. You know this dying cat thing where they start crawling away from the heat source? And it's because they, they have to get away from the conduction heat. So they have to get away from the object that's heating them up. Uh, let's see. So double C-R-E-R, radiation. Um, so heat loss or gain to the environment along a temperature gradient uh, without direct contact. Hmm. Let's think about this one for one. So let's see. So if we're heat loss or gain to the environment along a temperature gradient without direct contact. Oh, so if you're sitting in the sun, like, oh, like my dog that I wrote the case report on. That's right. I'm remembering this now that I had to have, um, I had to outline that there were two types of of heat or lack of heat loss that was happening to this particular um, dog. So that so my case report ended up being a, ca- a cavalier, a King Charles Cavalier Spaniel that was nine years old and it had a microtrachea, which I'd never heard of. But it basically meant that the trachea was extraordinarily small, so much so that when they took her in for a dental like two or three years ago, they were unable to intubate her properly because they didn't have a tube that could like slide. Like, I mean, she would have had to have like a three or three and a half tube to get her her trachea. So she was outside in a hundred and this is an unusual heat wave. Thank you, global warming for the Bay Area, that it was like 95, 100 degrees. And they let her out to pee in the backyard with two other dogs. And she collapsed of heat exhaustion within they say five, 10 minutes. And she came in with a temperature of like 110, which I didn't even know thermometers could read 110, but that's what her referring veterinarian had told us. Um, So she nearly died. So she was having heat gain uh, along a temperature gradient without direct contact from the sun heating her up. And then also she was unable to transfer heat off of her body because she had this teeny weeny little trachea, kind of like a brachycephalic, except, you know, the the problem was deeper inside of her body. Uh, And then the last one is evaporation. So the double C-R-E-E being the evaporation, moisture vaporizing into the air, pulling heat away from the body. And we love this one because this is the one, uh, I'm I'm sure that you guys do this down under, that when they come in for the... uh, the overheating, do you guys just like immediately just run cool water over them? Do you do that kind of technique or IV catheter fluids and then cool water to actively cool them down? We do. We don't, I wouldn't call it cool water. I'd call it like room like, temperature. Right. Water. Tepid, like tepid. Right. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Exactly. That's perfect. Yeah. So that's exactly <laughs> what I have in my experience as well seen is the best way to bring their temperature down. You see all these, and I know you see this, you see people come running with their little alcohol bottle to put on the pads and people come with the ice packs, right? It doesn't really do it as well as just place a catheter, start IV fluids, douse them in tepid water. It's amazing how well that works, right? I'm, I was always astounded that it was such a simple fix for that problem. And part of the mechanism that you're using is evaporation because you're, you're using that, that, uh, that moisture to pull heat away from the body. Uh, so good. So we don't need to, I feel like you guys have, you guys have reviewed that by now. You also, that's a nice one because you see it. You see it when you see these heat stroke dogs come in. 
Um, oh, so do you remember the temperature that defines heat stroke? I conveniently have this number written in both Fahrenheit and Celsius <laughs> for our world conference of ETS exam studying. Do you remember this number? It'll come up. Na, 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 na. I would guess greater than 41. Yes. Degrees. Yes. 41 is the magical number. So in our, in the Western California world, it's 105.8. And I love that this is a specific number. This is, I think there was actually a study. Heather Ann Scott will probably be able to post a link <laughs> to whatever that study is. That's her magic trick. Uh, but they actually did determine that that is the point that defines heat stroke because brain damage starts to happen after 105.8. So yes, very good. 41 degrees Celsius. Awesome. Um, there is also this flashcard that I have, um, which I titled the hypothermic temp of no return. And it's because there was a, I think this is probably in Silverstein and Hopper that there was a, a Fahrenheit temperature that was specified to start reducing metabolism at the cellular level. And that's when your vasoconstriction reverses to vasodilation and then heat loss is happening more quickly. And then you're just going to drop, drop, drop. Um, I don't have the Celsius number for this one, but it's 94 degrees Fahrenheit. So figure that's got to be like 35, maybe 35, 34, something Celsius, because 37 is 96.8, I think. So at that point, and the reason why that number is important, now again, this is one of those, and this is what I love about the environmental emergencies, is it's specific to your location. So hypothermia is something that we in the California Bay Area will see it if we're actively cooling down too low, or we'll see it with patients that are coming out of anesthesia. Um, we don't routinely see it from an environmental cause. And that's because it doesn't snow here. Um, it snows in Tahoe. It snows in Reno. Um, it doesn't snow in San Francisco. Well, God, I say that now, but like the Trump climate change is coming, so maybe it could. Um, but we don't routinely see animals that come in from an environmental hypothermia. Uh, there was, uh, there are cats that we'll see that'll come in from like crazy situations like falling in a swimming pool. Oh, one of my other case reports was a cat that went through a cycle in the washing machine. She lived, but like she was definitely hypothermic, but even those are like, you know, they're kind of the nature of it is that they were in a mechanical, like artificial circumstance to get them cold, not, not the environment itself. They weren't trapped in a snowbank. Um, but the reason why it's important to know is because once you get 94 degrees or below, that your cellular metabolism is going to start to really be affected. And once that, it's kind of like a, um, uh, it's like a cliff's edge. You know, I think of it like the Mariana Trench. Like, you know, like you kind of have, uh, like, so on the, on, the, on the coast of California, you have this incredibly deep part of the Pacific Ocean, which is the Mariana Trench. And the, the depth of it is like miles and miles, like, the, like, Everest style, except underwater. But you have this table that goes out from the coast of California for like a long time. And then all of a sudden, boom, you just like fall off this trench into no man's land. And that's a little bit like hypothermia works. It's like you can kind of, your body can compensate with these mechanisms for a while. But once you get down to the cellular level and you're not able to metabolize properly and you're not able to, to keep your energy level Zoot, then off the cliff you go. Because as soon as that temperature starts, as soon as you lose your 
your cellular respiration and metabolism, then that temperature is going to drop, drop and drop and drop. And that's when you're, because your vessels are constricting, right? To get all your blood and warmth to your core. Once you lose that ability and your vessels dilate again, it's like all of a sudden, all of that heat that you were conserving is going to go away. Uh, but I have to say, I have, I have yet to see like dog left in the cold come into the hospital for hypothermia. Usually it's related to other things we're doing. Um, so another thing related to uh, hypothermia, there is one of our electrolytes that gets affected by hypothermia. And I had forgotten about this entirely and start, until I started to look over my little flashcards for this session. Um, but you guys might have had it come up in your reading. Do you remember which, uh, which electrolyte is affected by hypo hypothermia? You can kind of think of it like, um, think of it this way. So when I'm super, super cold, my cells are getting damaged and they're starting not to function properly. And when I have cells that are damaged, what electrolyte is going to go up? Potassium. Yeah, girl. I, yes, yes, exactly. That's exactly right. So hyperkalemia. So hyperkalemia can happen when potassium is leaking out of these damaged cells. And then when we rewarm them, um, we get this shift of potassium from the intracellular into the extracellular, extracellular space. So there is some caution that we have to use if we're supplementing um, potassium in these patients. Uh, it, just because we know that there's going to be this potassium shift that's going to start to happen when we're rewarming them. So they just have to be a little bit, I've, I've actually not had to practically worry about that when, when rewarming hypothermic patients. Um, but it is something to think about that like, you know, you're going to have this shift in potassium. So maybe if you see their potassium is like way mega, mega low or mega, mega high, um, uh, when you're, when they're hypothermic, be conscious of, of rechecking it as you're rewarming them because if you supplement it, then you might cause a problem. And we all know about this triad of death, right? This triad of death of the, um, you'll hear about it in human medicine, but it's the, uh, let's see if I can remember all three. It's hypothermia, um, acidosis, and I think coagulopathy, I think is what it is. Is this like triad of death that happens in trauma? Um, so there is a coagulopathy that can happen with hypothermia and it's the same, it's, it's all related to the same thing. It's that, you know, your enzymes are starting to be deactivated because you're, because everything is, everything is so slowed down. So your, your coagulation factors are reduced. Um, this is an interesting thing that I thought that I didn't think about. Um, until I started reading about it, but your platelet aggregation is also decreased when you're hypothermic. So it's both things. It's, it's the, so the coagulopathy is two, twofold, that you have the action of your factors is reduced, but then also the platelets that you have that are existing, their ability to aggregate is also decreased. So not thrombocytopenic, but the ability for them to function properly is reduced. Fun. Um, oh, Ooh, let's talk. I was excited about getting to this. So now we're going to leave hypothermia for a sec. We're going to start to talk about rattlesnakes a little bit. So Australia, this is your jam. There's all this <laughs> snake envenomation. Do you guys have like a, a freaking freezer full of antivenin in your clinic for all the different things that try to kill you? Um, it's in the fridge, but yes, there is a lot. <laughs> I love it. And they're all different kinds, right? For all different types of snakes? Correct. 
Do we, oh my god. Karu, we um we have two main ones. One is a brown one and one is like a generic covers everything else. Oh, okay. So and, it, and so is that for um let's see. So is it for like a viper is one of them? Is um, that right? No, we don't have vipers. We have um the other big one we have is red belly black snakes. Oh, uh-huh. Um, uh-huh, uh-huh. And taipans. Oh, so our snake is very different. I saw the Taipan was on this crazy Netflix show that I saw that was like 72 most dangerous animals on earth or something. And this girl was walking down a path in like a park and this freaking Taipan shot out of a bush and bit her. (laughs) She almost died. I was like, oh, that's cute. So they're aggressive, right? Those Taipan snakes, aren't they like, they're not like, like they'll get you. Like if they see you, they're like, die. (laughs) The brown snakes. They're really aggressive too, and they're very common. Oh, that is insane. So thank God in California, we don't deal with many. There, there's like, there's the rattlesnake in venomations. That's really the main one that we deal with in my area. And I find that global warming has now increased their range so that it didn't used to be um, that you saw as many rattlesnake bites as you did in like San Francisco and Redwood City, which is which is a city south of San Francisco where I live. Like rattlesnake bites used to not be a thing, but now it's warm enough during the summers that they are that they're seeing rattlesnake bites in this hospital, which is really unusual. Um, so we would see uh, we generally carry one type of antivenin uh, because there's really only one type of snake that we worry about, and it's for the uh, oh, I'm going to mispronounce this cro- this word, but cro- croatolid is that how you say it? The croatolid, um, which is rattlesnakes, uh, and so that is the one that's the it mainly affects the clotting. So the one the brown snake that you guys see that's the common aggressive one is that a neurologic toxin or is that a, a coagula a coagulopathy that it it's both. Oh, nice. Okay. <laughs> but one type of antivenin for both of those things, huh? Yes. Okay. Well, that's good. At least you got the one. Yeah, the the neuro, the neurological effects of the the western rattlesnake is not really a thing. I mean, if it is a thing in our world, it's usually because the coagulopathy has become so severe that it's affecting like bleeding in their brain. Like that's usually what's happening. It doesn't have a a first line neurotoxic effect. Um, but the type of antivenin that we give, now you can tell me if this kind of jives with what you guys have. So the one that we routinely use, now thank God they've gotten a better one. It used to be this one that was produced by this company, Fort Dodge. And it's this this powder that you had to reconstitute and then put into like a bag of saline. And it was like this long drawn out process that would take you like a half hour. And of course, it's most effective if you give it within the first four hours. So figure the dog or cat has to get bit somewhere out in the world, and then it has to get to you. And then you have to reconstitute this freaking Fort Dodge annoying anti-venom, which also takes up time. So nobody liked this stuff. Um, So now they're using, um, now there's a good one called Venom Vet, which is uh, already in a little vial. It's ready to go. You add it to like 100 or 150 150 mil bag of saline, and then you give it um, over the course of like, you can, you can slam it in there if you really need to. I think the instructions say like a half hour to an hour, but you monitor it like a blood transfusion because uh, there's foreign proteins that are in there. Now, the annoying Fort Dodge one um, were mainly equine proteins. So it actually had more, uh, they had more reactions that you would see to that type of protein. But the Venom Vet uses like, I think it's like a mix 
of a sheep and and horse one, or maybe it's just the ovine. I'm not exactly sure, but it's the, the it's not it's not as much of a reactive protein that's in there. I think it's not equine. I think it's either ovine or caprine or something. Um, you still monitor it like a blood transfusion, but I have not seen any dogs react to that one, which is great. Um, this particular that when you're bit by this particular type of snake, it is still beneficial even 72 hours after the envenomation takes place to give that antivenin. Um, you can give multiple doses of that as well. Like I think the most antivenin that I've had a dog receive when I was working at a clinic uh, more in the East Bay, which is much more common to see rattlesnakes out there. Um, I think the most the dog had was three or four, I think over a 24 hour period, but the dog did live. We also see dogs that will live without the administration of the antivenin when they're bit by a Western rattlesnake. Now it depends on where they're bit. Uh, the dogs tend to, and I'm sure you'll remember, I'm sure this is the same, the same in your country, Kate, but that they'll tend to get the bites on their nose, right? The bridge of their nose. You'll see a little, yep. little two prong, right? Yep. We see that same thing. There was a Springer Spaniel that had a bite on an ear. I remember, um, cats tend to get bites on their paws because they're going bat, 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 and then the snake will get them on their paws. Um, we had, there are dogs that are treated with pain medication and like sub-Q fluids that live through these snake bites, but it depends where they are. I mean, if you're coming to our hospital or a specialty hospital, then you, we're not going to just do pain meds and sub-Q fluids. We're going to have access to the antivenin. Um, there was a dog that got bit in the eyeball that we saw and that dog died. Um, essentially because that is like an intravenous injection of venom to your brain if you're bit in the eyeball. And it's rare that we see dogs that are clinically sick from rattlesnake bites. You know, they'll be painful, they'll be swollen, but they'll still like wag their tail when they see you. Um, dogs that have envenomation that has been close to their brain like that, like this poor dog that had the bite in the eyeball, that dog was clinically sick, like unconscious. Whenever that dog did regain any kind of consciousness, it was painful and screaming. We basically kept it sedated and eventually it succumbed to, to, to its injuries. That was really bad. So it does depend uh, on the location of that bite for this, that particular type of snake. Um, and we're, we're guessing that, you know, that, 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 that had some neurological effect from a coagulopathy, I'm sure, but also the, the amount of venom that was in its brain. I mean, that's just not, that was, that was a bad scene. It was a little dog too. It was like a dachshund, which is terrible. Um, so the ones that you give, uh, in Australia, do you monitor those too? Like, like blood transfusions? We do. So we treat them like a blood transfusion. Um, they do come ready-made in a vial um, and you just put it in some saline and depending on the patient, you can smash it in or yeah, realistically 30 to 60 minutes is more common. Um, and they can need multiple vials. The vials are expensive. Yeah. Um, So sometimes it's a little bit cost prohibited. Sure. Um, but ours do not get better without that antivenom. They don't get better. Yeah. Like you'll, you'll lose them if you don't give it. Absolutely. And we sometimes lose them even if we do give it. Oh my God. Because Australia tries to kill you. That's why. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, One of my case reports was from a brown snake cat who did live, but um, yeah, my mentor and everyone else who read it was very interested because it's so different over here. 
Absolutely. No, that's why you're taking this test. That board loves weird things like that. They love weird case reports. And that's a really good one. Yeah, there was a, um, the other one that I can think of that did not survive was a dog that had been bit in the chest, another small dog that had been bit in the chest and it had gotten to our clinic like maybe... Oh my God. I want to say it was bit in the morning and it went to a clinic and it was in Lake Tahoe, which is a very woodsy mountainous area, about four or five hours from where I am. And it had been, had not received antivenin and it was bit in the morning, went to an, went to a GP in the woods and they gave it like butorphanol and sub-Q fluids or something. Then got to us at like nine o'clock at night and the dog was very clinical at that point and uh, was, had petechia all over its gums and abdomen and we were giving it antivenin and it died. So I feel like sometimes, you know, it, it's it, thankfully, I feel like it's actually, it's actually fairly rare that we see deaths from, from rattlesnake bites, especially now that we have such good access to the antivenin here, but they, there, it is possible, you know, we won't euthanize them. I think that's maybe a difference is that, you know, in your case, uh, if they get bit by a, what was it? Taipan? Is that what it was? The vicious one? Um, the, yeah. Brown snakes are more common. Oh, okay. By the brown snakes. So that's the one that they'll die. Like they'll 100%. Yes. Like they will die. Okay. So like if you have a dog that's bit by a brown snake and they're cost prohibitive, I mean, I feel like in our case, we won't necessarily recommend euthanasia if they're bit by a rattlesnake and the person has no money. Like, we'll just be like, you know what? we'll give them some pain meds. You can take them home. Hopefully like it'll be okay. Especially if the dog's like BAR, like bright and alert, swollen, but you know, bright and alert. We won't necessarily recommend that because it is possible that they can turn around on their own. Um, of course, if they're clinically ill from a snake bite, then they won't. It's unlikely that they will. But I think that's a big difference, right? The brown snake is like, oh, nope, you're done. Like <laughs> that'll be, that'll be the end of you. Yeah. Uh, so let's see. So that's that's my little rattlesnake antivenin card. I think there's more there's more on this that I know we'll we'll likely get to. But that's super fun. I was looking forward to that one. Um, carbon monoxide poisoning. Anybody ever seen that one? I have not. Oh, somebody is that somebody shrieking a yes? Is that what that was? <laughs> was that what was that a mouse? <laughs> um, yeah. So carbon monoxide poisoning is not. Uh, not something that I've ever seen, but I think that we all know what the number one, we all have to learn what the number one clinical sign is, right? Do we all remember what it is with the gums? The cherry red. They're supposed to be hella red, right? That's right. So I, I feel like we all see pictures of it. We don't, um, we don't necessarily see it that often where, where I am. Um, but the cherry red mucous membranes is the, is the thing that you always know about. Um, so it's, uh, it's a hypoxia, which kills these guys, which absolutely makes sense. Uh, the gas is, it's, it, it's one of those scary things that you don't even know that it's in your house. Um, what it does is it, it binds to hemoglobin at the, at the same site as oxygen binds to. And so um, they become hypoxic very quickly. Uh, there was a really good, okay, sidebar, but there was a really good forensic files. I don't know if you guys watch forensic files, but it's this awesome show about like forensics and murder and all these crazy deaths that happen. So uh, one of them was this guy who had installed a pool heater in like part of his garage, which he also happened to have a game room in. So dude was like, in his game room playing pool, kind of got sleepy and went to sleep on his couch, died of carbon monoxide poisoning because the pool heater that he had installed like next door to his game room had basically replaced all the oxygen in the room with, with the carbon monoxide. So that's, that's a really extreme situation, but 
that's how scary it is that you can like sit there next to it and inhale it for hours and not realize that it's going to be a problem. Um, the affinity, this is something that I thought was interesting when I was doing the reading for it is that the affinity for oxygen, um, for, uh, hemoglobin that this gas has is really, it's much greater than oxygen. So like your hemoglobin wants carbon monoxide, which I think is terrifying, right? Because even if you have oxygen in the room, your, the hemoglobin's affinity to that particular gas is so much greater than oxygen that it's going to take it anyway. So even the oxygen that's in the room, it's like, sorry, somebody's already here on your hemoglobin. Um, it shifts your oxyhemoglobin disassociation curve. Now, I'll take this opportunity to ask you guys if, you, if we're there yet. Are we there yet for oxyhemoglobin disassociation curve? It's like a heading on one of the study sessions. And I couldn't remember if you guys had talked about that yet. Not yet. Oh, very good. You'll get there. Um, it's a scary graph that you'll have to know in and out. Um, but basically what it is, is it, it, it gives you an idea about your, your affinity to be able to uh, metabolize oxygen. That's like my, my like 20 words or less version of what that curve is. Um, this will shift your curve to the left because you're going to have less oxygen. Um, there's an interesting phenomenon that can happen, and I don't know why, which is a hearing loss that can happen. You have this transient hearing loss. I don't know why that is, but I, I have a little like star and a happy face next to that note on my flashcard. Like, look at this weird thing. Um, it's usually the obviously the death the death that occurs is going to be hypoxia of your brain, um, hypoxia of your cardiac tissue. So the number one therapy for carbon monoxide toxicity is oxygen. That's right. Exactly. That's number one, because what we want to do is bump out the bad guys for the good guys. We want your hemoglobin to have affinity for oxygen. So you got to get the carbon monoxide out and the oxygen in. So 100%. Oxygen is the best therapy you want, oh, this is going to get into, now I know ventilator stuff is coming up. So you guys will have much more familiarity with these types of terms, but fractured of inspired oxygen, that's the percentage of oxygen that you're inhaling. So room air is about 20%. Our oxygen cages tend to be calibrated for about 40. Um, the therapy for carbon monoxide toxicity is 100% oxygen. Um, and what that does is it reduces the half-life of carbon monoxide by about 50% or more. Um, and so you can do you know, a limited amount of, of 100% oxygen therapy, because as we all know, they can't be on 100% oxygen forever. Um, that'll start to do damage as well. But 30 minutes to six hours is the window that Silverstein and Hopper gives us um, of 100% fracture, uh, fracture, fraction of inspired oxygen therapy for carbon monoxide cases. Um, so I think that's pretty cool. It actually has a number to it. The half-life is 50% or more when you're doing that. Um, there's another weird gas that comes up in the environmental, uh, the environmental stuff, which is hydrogen cyanide. Uh, this is something I've certainly never seen, at least that I've, I've not known that I've seen it. Uh, but what happens is, is it's, uh, it's like, it's, it's from fires that involve like synthetic material, like wools or like synthetic, um, like nylons and stuff. Um, it's a smoke, it's in the smoke, but the gas itself is a, it's also not an irritant. So you don't necessarily know that you're breathing it in. Um, but it interferes with, um, oxygen utilization. Now it, 
the words that I have written on this flashcard are complicated and annoying. Bicellular cytochrome oxidase. Maybe I knew what that meant a year ago. I don't remember what it means now. But I think what we can remember is um, the way that the that this particular gas, this hydrogen cyanide, the way that it interferes with your oxygen utilization is different than carbon monoxide. So this one has to do with uh, the cellular level, it's interfering with it. Um, oxidase is gonna be an enzyme, obviously. So it's cellular respiration is what this one is interfering with. And they call this, it's a different type of hypoxia. They call it a histotoxic hypoxia. So it basically is making your tissues toxic, histo being tissue toxic poison. Um, so a slightly different type of hypoxia, but one that, but one that can be caused by this chemical nonetheless. Ah, uh, let's see what else I've got here. Oh, so uh, electric shock. This is what we're going to move on to next. So uh, I'm sure that you've seen electric ele electrocution cases in your clinic. Um, I think the last one that I can remember was a kitty that chewed on a lamp cord. That tends to be one that we see fairly often. You look for burns in the mouth. Um, they get a non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema. Um, there is a good word here, which is called electroporation. Um, and basically what that, you can kind of tell by the word what that's going to mean, like electro meaning uh, electricity, um, poration having to do with cellular membranes. So what happens is when you have this a severe electric shock is there's a momentary momentary holes that are caused in the cellular membrane by this electric shock and it actually causes osmotic damage. So what happen, what happens is macromolecules can pass through that cellular membrane while those holes are in place. Now I don't know how long those holes are in place for. I'm going to assume that it's a moment, a moment that it all happens. Um, electric shock is fascinating in that the event itself can be just like can be just like one second, and yet it can cause a lot of damage. And of course, the longer that they're being, um, the longer that they're having the electrocution, the worse it is. Uh, so things that can increase the damage by electric shock. So obviously the length of time, uh, the location can make a difference. Uh, I think that a terrifying, but like the toaster, the toaster in the bathtub, right? So like the, if you're have dry skin, it's less conductive than wet skin. Um, you know what else is wet skin? Your mucous membranes. Ooh. So that's why when Kitty chews, you so bad. And you get electrocuted, it's far worse than if you are dry. Oh, say that one more time. Was that Kelsey? No. I think that was someone saying that if you get electrocuted, it's way worse if you're wet than dry. That is true. 100 percent Um, because your wet skin or wet mucous membranes are much more conductive. So yes, I believe that's what that person said. Yes, you are right. Um, there's also a difference between alternating and uh, direct current. Um, do you have now, is Australia direct current or alternating? I can't remember. Um, I'm not sure. <laughs> right? I'm curious. I can't remember. I was trying to think of like the type of adapter. I haven't been to Australia, obviously, but... Um, Alternating versus direct can make a difference. So we have alternating current in the U.S. Um, it's worse because alternating can cause muscle tetany. So as we all 
see in the movies, it's true. Um, when your muscles contract, you can't let go. So, you know, I, this is the one thing that I'll remember about alternating current and muscle tetany is that sometimes you'll see old school electricians they'll test, they can test live wires, but the, with their hands, because they're crazy people, and they'll test it with the back of their hand. So when they, if it's live, their hand will close, but it will close away from the wire. So if they were to test it with their hand forward, their hand would grip, right? And then it would wrap itself around the wire and then you're just going to be, bzzz, and you're not going to be able to let go. So I always remember that crazy old school thing about alternating current is that you test with the back of your hand so that your muscles contract the opposite way. Um, and then obviously the amount of voltage can make a difference. Like a large appliance outlet, like a dryer or like a washing machine versus a regular outlet, there's a lot more electricity that are flowing, those, flowing through those um, than just the regular outlets in your house. Uh, so let's see. So who else has their mics on in this situation? Kate, you're awesome. And you're answering all my questions so well. Hannah, who's Hannah? Were you here last time, Hannah? I wasn't. I had to work. Oh, so welcome. Welcome. Where, where are you hailing from? Um, South Carolina. Oh my God. Where in South Carolina? I went there last summer. Charleston. Oh, I loved Charleston. <laughs> we were in Charleston and then we were in this dreadful little town called Dillon, which is right on the border. It was on that, it has that like the south of the border park or whatever. Do you know what I'm yeah. talking about? Oh my God. So yeah, we had like friend of a friend who lived in that tiny little town. Oh, that's fun. And then the other person who I see has their mic on is Nan. Who's Nan? You weren't here last time either, I don't think. No, I wasn't. I'm oh. in Denver. You're in Denver. Oh, Mile High City, right? Yep. I've heard it's terrifying flying in and out of Denver. Is that true? No. Okay, good. No. That's good because I want to go there and I hate flying. It's, it's way <laughs> scarier to fly, in, fly into San Francisco. What's that? It's way scarier to fly into San Francisco. Really? Oh, yeah. That makes, that makes you fly over the bay in San Francisco. No, thank you. Oh, yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. Um, and it looks I'm like there. you're going to land in the water, doesn't it? It's amazing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's so funny see and i've always thought oh denver it's gorgeous there and i'll never go <laughs> because I hate but that that encourages me that's very good the airport is actually on the desert side of the mountains and it's really like just a flat easy landing oh word up okay here i come denver thank you restored my faith in being able to visit there well good well welcome guys so um the reason why i was just seeing who was here is because i was going to ask about the clinical signs of electric shock. And I always like to have you guys, because there's a lot of them. Ah, well, I mean, like a lot, like relatively, like, you know, there's like more, more than three. Um, and so I figured we'll just like shout out a couple of these clinical signs of electric shocks. I'm sure you guys have all seen it. So what are some things that we'll see here when we have uh, an animal that's gotten electric shock? Say, say, the, say the person saw it happen. So say we know that that's what it was. They bring in this kitty. They're like, what's our kitty? There was smoke and there was a scream and we saw a chewed up lamp cord. Like what, what are the things that we're going to see? Oral burns. Yep. Tachypnea. Yep. Pulmonary edema. Yeah. What type of pulmonary edema? Non-cardiogenic non pulmonary edema. Very good. Very good. Um, what are some other things that we might see? We talked about one of them. Uh, having to do with another type of mechanism, but still relates to cellular damage. Hyperkalemia. Yes, girl, that is exactly right. And if I have been electrocuted for a really long time and I'm going, e and my muscles have tensed up and I'm using up all of my... Um, if I, Let's see if we can say this. If I have used up all of my energy 
and all of the oxygen in my tissues, what's the other value that we're going to see go up? Increasing the lactate. Word up. Very good, guys. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, thermal burns we mentioned. Very good. Um, what clinical sign will we see from the pulmonary edema? Before we know it's there, what clinical sign do we see? Tachypnea. Yeah, there you go. Tachypnea. Exactly. Very good. Oh, that's right. And you had said tachypnea. So very good. Now, in extreme circumstances, we can start to see something happen with the heart, right? Because, you know, just like, just like, it's like the kitty defibrillated itself, right? Um, I have not seen in my own particular experience cardiac arrhythmias from electric shock, but we all know that that can happen. Um, there's another scary thing that can happen with the thermal burns uh, is they can also develop uh, laryngeal edema. So a lot of times when you see that tachypnea that might be related to the pulmonary edema, we also have to be conscious that they could have damage that's happened lower down into their airway as well. So it's possible that these guys might need to be intubated. Um, I have this funny little note at the bottom. Sometimes I have these notes on my flashcards and I'm like, interesting, but maybe nothing that you'll see. Um, cataracts can develop from, uh, from electrocution, but it doesn't happen till months later. So let me know if y'all ever see that, if you keep track of a case and they develop cataracts months and months later. Uh, so let's see what else we have here. Um, so something speaking, so speaking of burns, so, uh, there is something called now I won't get into too much detail with this because I think this is going to be helpful for you guys to look this up because it's good to have a visual, um, but there's something called Jackson's burn model. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Has anybody run across this Jackson's burn model? No. Yeah, it's a little obscure, right? But it actually, I think it's a name for something that we already know. So what this does, Jackson's burn model is where we get the first degree, second degree, third degree. Those are all terms that we know of. So it describes the pathophysiology that we see of a burn. The first layer um, is, you know, that's the one where you like burned yourself on some hot tea or something. Got a little, you get the the um, the, the erythema that you get, the red skin. Second degree is the is where there's some, they call it the zone of stasis. So it stops damage from spreading. So that's why you get the blister. And then of course the third degree, they call it the zone of coagulation. And that's where like muscle damage and necrosis can even occur. Um, so the way that uh, I found this easiest to look at was if you, if you Google image Jackson's burn model, or if you look at, I think I found this in Silverstein and Hopper, it gives you the three layers of skin, your epidermis, your dermis, and then subcutaneous tissue. And essentially, those are the, th those are the three degrees, like first degree epidermis, second degree dermis, third degree subcutaneous tissue. Um, so it's all information that you already know. It just gives us a name for it. Uh, let's see. So another thing that qu qualifies for, uh, environmental is drowning. So this is a super sad one. So Australia, do you have lots of pools down there? Are there are lots of swimming pools that people have. There are a lot. Yep. Yes. South Carolina, you probably have lots of swimming pools, right? I would guess. Um, and, yep. And, <laughs> and what? And beaches. Oh, and beaches. Of course. There you go. So same in the Bay Area. We don't have quite as many pools as like Los Angeles does. Um, but absolutely, we see drowning patients. So the one that I wrote about from a case reports happened to be a little kitty in a washing machine. Um, 
so ha- what was the last uh what was the last drowning case or like water inhalation case that you guys that you guys saw do you, did did you see one in recent in recent memory have you seen, have you seen one this summer yet um well it's winter here so oh right but isn't your winter like 90 degrees anyway? So you probably could still see. <laughs> you, yeah, you, you still could see one. Um, it wasn't a super recent one, but it was one that I remember very well. And uh-huh. it was a um, young kitten who some teenagers took in the pool. Oh, dumb, um, dumb, dumb, yeah. Now, they told us it never went under, but mm. the clinical signs of the kitty was very different. So it arrived completely normal and we just decided to watch it. Oh, uh-huh. um, and it went from completely normal to needing a ventilator in about four hours. Wow, isn't that something? And it was because of all the damage that had been done to the to the lungs, huh? Yeah, and it clearly had been under and submerged, and it spent I think two days on ventilator, and then woke up and went home. Wow, isn't that something? Yeah, so but incredibly resilient, right? Like that that kitten could survive that. Um, the one that. Uh, yeah, the one that that spent the cycle in the washing machine all like came in laterally recumbent and dying. But that one also was better my morning, um, remarkably. Like I feel like the fact that that cat was very very young was in its favor. Um, the most, the thing to know about drowning. So a couple things. Um, one is uh, the, the and I think we actually talked about this in that VTS or bus group. Somebody had asked something about this. Um, there is something called pulmonary surfactant. So pulmonary surfactant is this incredible thing that you have on your alveoli, which is, uh, it's like a, it's like a, almost like a membrane. Um, it's a, it's a coating of both lipophilic and hydrophilic material. And so what that does is it helps keep your alveoli like I kind of think of like cotton balls, you know, it helps keep them, keep them up and puffy so they can have gas exchange at the capillary level. Now what happens when you inhale a bunch of water is that you lose that surfactant. So all of a sudden your poor little alveoli that are usually like little fluffy bunnies in there collapse because they're losing their ability to balance out their hydrophilic and lipophilic abilities. And what happens is you get collapsed lungs. Um, you have an inability to have proper gas exchange. Now, the poor little kitten that you guys saw, um, she had already suffered damage from that. And so her lungs were probably quite literally like filling up with her own body fluid at that point. Like, you know, she had washed out all of her surfactant, come to you guys, and then her poor alveoli were unable to keep themselves alive and open. So she had to be on the ventilator too good words to remember, recruit her alveoli, right, back into existence so that she could oxygenate properly. Um, uh, Atelectasis, that's obviously going to be something that happens with the loss of surfactant as well. Um, There's something called dry drowning, which, you know, I just don't know that it comes up very often in the literature, but there is a phenomenon where your body, you will unconsciously have a laryngospasm um, when you're underwater and it's the release of that spasm and inhale, inhaling of water, which can really mess you up. But there is also the dry drowning factor is, uh, what it really means is that the spasm that you have, um, is also making you hypoxic. It's just that you haven't inhaled water yet, but it's your body's like unconscious response to not breathe when you're underwater also causing hypoxia. Um, 
there is you could be conscious of this although you know in our in our abcs of respiratory you know, of of uh of emergency you know swallowing of the water is not super super high on the list when we're dealing with an animal that can't breathe uh but that is something to consider that you know they they may require if these animals have swallowed a lot of water emptying the stomach it's not a super number one high priority but if their stomach is just like so distended from water that's something to think about um the kitty that was in the washing machine we we're making all these jokes that like well she she definitely had a bunch of water in her stomach because she was in a washing machine it was all like soapy water so we were just waiting for the blowout diarrhea which did happen um, but also we were kind of saying that, you know, like with this, this, this little kitten that's bouncing around in the morning, having diarrhea, she's like having little soap bubbles. She's having soap bubble diarrhea. It's just cleaning her out. It'll be great. It's like blowing bubbles. But that kitten was amazing. She came in laterally recumbent, hypothermic. We warmed her up, gave her IV fluids, treated her eyes for corneal abrasions, right? Because she had her eyes open in the water. And within four hours, she was up and eating AD for us. So that kitten was resilient. Um, did not have to go on a ventilator, which is also good. Uh, so let's see, drowning, very good. Any other good tidbits from drowning that you guys have that you guys have seen or treated, or any other weird? Uh, I know the kind of water makes a difference. So yes, plain water true. versus salt water versus chlorinated water. Perfect. You're exactly right. And versus washing machine water, right? That's got like <laughs> soap and terrible things in there. Yes. Um, the you know the seawater. This is the other thing that we didn't even get to with the drowning. But you brought, but you've made a point in in saying the type of water matters. Um, you know you've got all kinds of exciting bacteria and flagellates and protozoa that you're going to have um, in like lake water and sea water. So that can also be a factor too. And of course, because all your surfactant is washed out. Um, you're going to be prone to infections, so that's a whole that that's a whole other aspect of it as well as the infectious factor. Um, we sent our little kitten home on antibiotics, knowing that she was going to that she had was if she didn't develop it yet, she is going to um, develop a pneumonia from inhaling all that terrible stuff. So yes, you're right. Yeah, the type of water makes a difference. Uh, we talked about the tick antitoxin last time. I feel like I have it in here again. For Australian tick paralysis, but we talked yeah. about that. So I feel like and that's review for you, girl. Um, we also talked about uh, the tetanus antitoxin last time. So I feel like I'm just going to look at the back of this and see if there's anything that's worth reviewing. Oh, right. So that was a little point that we made last time too, that the, even if you give the antitoxin, it's neutralizing the free toxin, but not the toxin that's already bound to nerve tissue. That was something our neurologist defined for us. I think that's the same. Like it's certainly the same with our snakes and our ticks. We're only neutralizing free toxin. We're not yes. actually the toxin that's already bound. We're not actually doing anything with that. They have, that's a time thing. That's right. Like it's like it's hard to reverse gears, right? That's a that's a tricky yes. thing about toxins. It's hard to to reverse. Um, cool. So let's see, guys. So that was so that was the end of my little pile on the environmental um, environmental emergency stuff. Is there any other, any questions or any good little tidbits or any things that that you guys have? Any questions about environmental stuff? Um, I thought it was a very good. How much focus will really there be on like environmental? But we don't see anti. 
You don't see what? Oh, oh I, lost, I lost you guys for a second there. You were saying, Kate, you don't see... Um, any antifreeze toxicities, but I feel that parts of the oh, things will commonly see that. Girl, yes. Oh, my God. Is that in this pile? I'm just going to flip through and see really quick. Um, are we going to get to it today? Yes, we're going to get to that. We're going to get to that because that's, okay. that's, that's a big oh, wait. one in our pile. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's coming. It's coming. Um, and then someone else had a question. Or, oh, oh, how much of the test is related to it? Is that what you said? Well, no. How much of it is like ingestion of toxins versus environmental injury? Oh, in the, uh, what they test you on, do you mean? Yeah. Oh, I think it's hard to say. You know, at the, at the top of the... Um, of one of these study guides. Let me see if I can bring it up here. I was looking at it earlier today. Uh, there's a study guide that has the test breakdown um, that was on, that's, that's posted on the VTS or, Bus web, VTS or Bust website. It was one of the documents that's in there. Um, it, 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 does, it doesn't even really say, you know, it says four to 6% of the test is on toxicology and pharmacology. So that's how they, def that they grouped those two things together, which I thought was kind of weird. So yeah, I don't really know what percentage is going to be on there. I feel like the way to approach the the environmental bit of it is that you know environmental I think is a bit of a misnomer. Like it kind of it doesn't really I don't think it really is a very good definition for what those subjects are. Um, I feel like there are things that we there there are things that we see in the clinic that are related. I, I feel honestly, I feel like it's accident related, right? So like it's overheating, it's being in a pool, it's um, chewing on an electrical cord. Like those all qualifies this environmentalness. Um, I find the most the the thing that to know the best about each one of those phenomenon is the pathophysiology of how it works. So like say, um, say we know for instance that extreme cases of heat stroke and heat exhaustion will cause profuse and disgusting diarrhea, right? We've all been there. We're like, oh God, it's coming. This dog is going to need pee pads like four inches thick beneath its butt because it's now going to have total diarrhea. But why does that happen? So those types of things, uh, also with uh, uh, like the lung surfactant, like, you know, like if they have, if they have a uh, pulmonary edema that happens from electric shock, why that is, if they have, um, if they inhale pool water, which has chemicals in it to know like the physiology of how that's going to damage your lungs. I think those are the main take home points for the, for the environmental stuff. Uh, cause the, the treatment of it is fairly straightforward, which is great. You know, we rewarm them, we cool them down. Like, I feel like that's the nice part of the environmental stuff is that they're, the fixes are fairly easy, but the board is going to want to know how they, they're going to want you to be able to tell them why those easy fixes do the job that they do. Like what's happening on like cellular levels for all of those conditions. Does that kind of make sense? Yes. Thank you. Okay. Perfect. Perfect. Which you guys are doing really great with. I feel like all of, like all of the things on the back of all those flashcards, like I feel like you guys were answering the right questions. That's great. Um, so let's look a little bit at, I know we're going to push a little bit over an hour, but let's look at the, um, the, toxicology stuff. Now I love toxicology, so I could spend a long time on this. I'll try to, I'll try to keep it relatively brief because we've been at it for an hour already. Um, 
Let's talk about, I'm going to skip some of the ones that are not terribly relevant. Let's look at, okay. So my pile of flashcards that I have here in front of me, I kind of categorized it by the drug, um, by the type of drug that it is and the type of uh, clinical signs that it causes. And then I've got some uh, solutions that we have for those, for those things. And so we'll kind of go through it like that. So the first one that we'll talk about, acetaminophen toxicity. Uh, so uh, the acetaminophen toxicity happens worse in cats. We all know that. Do we know why it happens worse in cats? That's a good thing to know. Because remember, we, there's, I, I'm sure that you guys have seen this in the clinic that, you know, like if the front desk is real freaked out because they're like, this dog ate Tylenol. And you're like, hmm, that might be a thing, maybe. But then if they come to you and they're like, this cat ate Tylenol, you're like, oh, crap. Because then you know that's going to be a problem. So there's, there's a reason why that is. Well, it's the methemoglobinemia, right? That is, yes. In, in extreme cases, it can cause that. But there's something specific to cats that causes them to be um, specifically sensitive to acetaminophen. I'll give you a hint. It has to do with their liver. No? Because cat? <laughs> What's that? Because cat? <laughs> because cat. Because cats are aliens. Cats are aliens. That's why. I mean, that is honestly, that it is honestly a little bit true. But so there is, for dogs, and I'm sure you guys have encountered this, there's actually, like, there's a dose that they can ingest of acetaminophen that, do, that we don't have to treat, right? Like, if, like it's a, if it's a giant dog and they sucked up a quarter of a Tylenol off the floor from some, I don't know, I don't know what circumstance that would be, but that if they lick the inside of an empty Tylenol bottle or whatever it is, that that actually might not be a dose that we have to necessarily treat in the hospital. For cats, there is no such thing as a safe dose for cats. And the reason why is they lack this particular enzyme um, in their liver, and it's got a really complicated name. So uh, there's a, the, 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 tr the type of enzyme that they're missing is glucose, I'm going to see if I can say it, glucuronal transferase. I think that's how you say it. I know, good word, right? Glucuronal transferase. But you can tell that it's an enzyme, right? Because it's got the ACE at the end. And I think the other clue is that it says transferase. So it's turning something into something. Um, so they don't have this thing. And so what happens is the acetaminophen produces this toxic metabolite. And this is what you're going to see in your reading. And this metabolite has a crazy name. It's like N-acetyl-P-benzoquinonanamine. And they abbreviate it by NAPQI. So if you see NAPQI, NAPQI, then that, that's the, the toxic metabolite that cats will produce because they don't have this particular enzyme in their liver. So when they produce that, that toxin, that toxic metabolite, that's what damages their liver cells. That's what damages their blood cells. So for cats, there is no safe dose that they can receive of acetaminophen. Um, we all know the treatment for this. I'm sure you guys have done it before. You know, the IV fluids, the N-acetylcysteine, which is a liver protectant. Um, they're also at risk for these metabolites being created because of the hepatic recirculation that can happen of this toxin. Um, methemoglobinemia is an amazing thing. Have you guys seen that in your clinics when a, when a dog comes in with that or a cat has that? I have. Yeah. Was it the weirdest? Did you know what it was when you saw it? Well, it was explained, but their blood looked like chocolate milk. 
unreal, right? And did their mucous membranes look super blue and super grayish? Yeah, blue, gray, brown. Totally weird, right? I did not know what it was the first time that I saw this. And it was a little Western terrier that had knocked over a backpack and this bottle of of Tylenol had spilled all over the floor. And the owners came home that was left alone with this backpack that it had that it had opened up. And when they came home, the dog was acting a little bit lethargic and they saw the spilled pill bottle that was like basically empty. There was like two tablets rolling around in there and they're like, oh my God, that bottle was like full. And they brought the dog to us and this little Westie, I like go to check its gum color and it was gray. And I was like, oh, 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 this is very, this is very weird, but was not overtly dyspneic. And it was because of the met hemoglobinemia. So I certainly had never seen it before that day. And I remember we, uh, you know, placing a catheter and drawing blood. And just like you described, yeah, that blood has this brownish, like oxidized color to it, which is unreal. Um, I've never seen it in a cat. And there actually is a genetic condition where you lack the, the enzyme that breaks down methemoglobinemia in your bloodstream that dogs can carry. And I have a friend who does these RAVs, um, the Rural Area Veterinary Services trips up to reservations. And they have pockets of these dogs that have been you know, breeding in the streets. And so they're all kind of inbred and they have this methemoglobinemia congenital um, a lack of enzymes. So every now and then when she goes to these Indian reservations, she'll see like five or six dogs that are all like blue mucous membranes running around, (laughs) which is really weird. But yeah, they can get hypoxic when that happens because their hemoglobin's not functioning properly. So good one. Uh, Let's see here. Speaking of cats being aliens, um, there is the toxin, which is permethrins or pyrethrins, that one that we see with the bad flea meds, El Cheapo flea meds or flea meds that are meant for dogs that go onto the cats. Um, so this one, they have the, uh, the tremors, right? That's usually what we see when they've got this type of toxicity. Do you know what the permethrins are derived from? I, I feel like I didn't remember this until I looked at it today. It's a type of flower. Anybody know what it is? Uh... Mm, it's on my cards. Chrysanthemum. Chrysanthemum. Yeah, chrysanthemum. Who said chrysanthemum? Belinda. Girl, yes. Did you just remember that off the top of your head? I read it earlier today. Oh, well done. I was going to say, like, that's a, that's a hard one. But yes, chrysanthemum, that's it. Oh, is that the kitty? Is that the yeah. kitty? Yes. Yeah, it is. Yes. yes. Um, so... Uh, the the difference between the permethrins and the pyrethrins is that the one of them, the permethrins are derived from the chrysanthemum. Absolutely right. The pyrethrins are are synthetic. Um, they're all flea treatments. Cats are obviously more sensitive than dogs. We see the tremoring. We see seizures in extreme uh, circumstance. Now, uh, as far as therapy goes, um, what are some therapeutic things that you guys have done for these poor kitties that come in shaking around like a like, yep, methocarbamol is a good one. Yep, that's a good one. Um, propofol CRI. Ooh, that sounds like it was a thing. Yeah, in extreme circumstances, I think a propofol CRI could help you. Um, there's, a, there's another type of therapy, which might not be available to all you guys, but there's an intravenous therapy that's not fluids or not, not crystalloids. Intralipids. Yeah. You got it. You got it. Intralipids. And do you guys all have intralipids at your clinics? Yes. 
Oh, cool. That's great. Because not everybody yeah. has those. Yeah. So absolutely. Interlipid therapy, usually they'll get a higher dose over the first hour and then they'll kind of go down to a lower dose. Yeah. Because those things are all, um, they're all lipid soluble. And so you're creating what they, this great phrase that they have called a lipid sink, the lipid sink phenomenon. So that you're sucking up all those lipid soluble things into the, into the interlipids. Um, do we give charcoal to these guys? No. No, that's right. And why would we not? Well, because it's dermal rather than oral. Right, which means that the absorption is going to be super fast. That's what I was looking for. Yeah, super, super fast, super, super rapid. So there's no point. Like, why would no point? There's no point in giving charcoal because by the time that you see them, they're already they're already shaken around. So yeah, that so that so you're right. The the way that the way that it's administered, the absorption is way too rapid for charcoal. There's another toxin um, sidebar. We're going to get to more of it later. But there's another toxin that you also don't give charcoal for because it's too rapid of an absorption. Do you know off the top of your head what that one is? Xylitol or zinc, both of them. Go. Yes, bam. Yes, very good. Xylitol. Xylitol was the one that that I was looking for. Zinc. I have a zinc toxicity card in here. We're going to get to. I just saw it go by. We're going to get to that. Uh, ivermectin. This is a toxicity we don't see very often in my world. Have you guys seen ivermectin toxicities of recent memory? I have. You have. And did you do interlipid therapy for that one? Yeah, we did. It was an MDR1 dog. There you go. She was in the hospital for a week. Ooh, damn. Yeah, and and so this is a good opportunity to to review that MDR1. Um, Do you know what MDR stands for? Who knows what MDR stands for? No. Aha! So this is good. Okay, so it makes sense. Don't worry. It's not going to get too complicated. Um, So MDR stands for multi-drug resistance. And so the MDR1 dogs, they are lacking this multi-drug resistant factor. So what happens is because they don't have this multi-drug resistance um, in their blood-brain barrier, drugs can get in through things easier than they can with dogs that carry this gene. So that's why we call that's that's why I thought it was interesting when I was learning about this that the MDR1 dogs if the multi-drug resistance one whatever that little factor is is actually a lack of something it's not like they have an extra something it's that they lack this drug resistance that other dogs have so I thought that was pretty cool so it goes through the blood brain barrier more easily because of that um did the dog that you treated for a week did it come in super clinical for the for the ivermectin yeah, and she was only, she was treated for walking dander, which is a Colorado derm issue. Wow. And, uh, and so she was treated with her housemate, reasonable dose of ivermectin, and she was completely ataxic and <sighs> tunded and really sick immediate like within an hour or two of the dose. Wow. She only got sicker and she got interlipids every day for five days. And then it was just fluid therapy and support until she could walk. But she, oh. but she did go home. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Flaccid paralysis is the words that I have written on the back of this card. Flaccid paralysis, which sounds like exactly what you described. So there you go. Yeah. Uh, did the walking dander, is that a mite? Yep. It's gross. It's, um, <laughs> <laughs> it literally looks like flakes of dander 
walking around on their skin. I totally know what this is. Oh my God. What is it? What is this called? Help me out, kids. It's the one that rabbits get, right? I don't remember the name of it because derm is gross. Oh, derm is. I know. Thank God we're all critical care people, right? Oh, <laughs> before we end this, I'm going to find what that is. I used to know. Oh, I know what it is. Kyla Tiella. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's, that's it. it. Oh my God, you guys, that was from the back of the roller decks. There was some cobwebs when that, that, <laughs> that word came out of my mouth. That's amazing. Okay. Yes. Ooh, I haven't heard of that in a long time, but that was why they gave the ivermectin was for that. Yeah. Wow. That is something. See, I love it when you guys are here. I think it's awesome. And she was a mix. She was a border collie mix, but that old adage, white feet don't treat. It there you totally go. her. Yeah. Isn't that something? And that is 100% like that is rings true, right? Because it's genetic. It's a genetic thing. So that white feet don't treat. God, I remember that from like GP days. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Oh, very cool. So that's good. That that and you were able to fix it. You fixed it. Well done. Now, of course, the the lipid therapy. You know, there are side effects to the lipid therapy. You know, you can get the, because it's a fat emulsion. It like bacteria loves to live in fat and sugar. So like that can be a thing. You have to be a sterile technique when you use those. Um, they can get a lipidemia. Like they can get a high content of the lipids in their bloodstream. Um, if you've got schnauzers that are predisposed to that kind of thing, you'd have to think about it more than I think you probably would with the dog that you guys treated. Um, do you guys put a filter on your lipid therapy? I haven't, but do you think we should? I don't know, girl. This is the thing, right? It's like I had not for a long time, like I had not used a filter on lipid therapy and I'd never had a problem. But then we got a new brand of interlipids that was in our hospital in Redwood City. And I was just like, I'm just going to look at the instructions just to make sure that everything is the same. And in the instructions, it said fat emboli is a risk and to use a filter. So I feel like now we're maybe, I don't know if it's just that particular supplier that we got that from that they would like you to use a filter with their products. I've done it filtered and non-filtered and both have been good case outcomes. I now am kind of thinking, oh dang, I guess if the instructions say so, you should do it. <laughs> right? It's like the manufacturer suggests you should do it. So I think now I'm going to filter it, even though I had not for nine years. Now I'm going to. <laughs> Maybe that makes me a terrible, terrible person that I hadn't for this point. We just had this conversation at work the other day about whether to filter it or not to filter it because I saw an article somewhere, I don't remember, about filtering it. But what kind of filter did you all use? Oh, the same one for blood. We used this that because the ones that um, – it was a big dog, and so – uh, we were able to like, just use, like that kind of basket looking filter. You know what I mean? Like we were giving like half the bag. So we just spiked it with the blood, the blood transfusion set for that one time. But you know, when I gave it to, oh, it's been two times actually. Cause when I gave it to a kitty that was in for, um, uh, for the pyrethrin toxicity, it was on a syringe pump and I used just like a hemonate filter on the syringe pump. So, you know, <laughs> bad BTS person. I did not look up the specific micron measurement for the filter. Well, I couldn't find thing. anything anywhere that said. That's oh, why I was okay. Curious. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, we're there. It's, it seems like I would hope it seems like it's something that would not happen very frequently, but I think if you're using a filter for fat emboli, I would hope that both the transfusion sets for both for like blood products would be enough that you could use them. I actually have trouble pushing fluids through the filters that they use for epidurals in our hospital. Um, so we tend to, there's those little round filters with the yellow 
around the outside. I'm sure you guys have probably seen those or sometimes it's green around the outside. Yeah. Um, that particular filter, I have, I've had trouble pushing like mannitol and fluids through those types of filters before. So I, I've, I don't really use those. I let the surgery department do their epidurals with those and I'll use the hemonates or the transfusion sets for, for blood products. And now for lipid therapy, I guess, I guess I'll use the filter. Fine. Fine. <laughs> <laughs> Instructions. Fine. I mean, it can't hurt anything, right? Can't hurt anything. Um, uh, that's good. I'm glad that you guys have also encountered this argument for and against. Well, it's, it's hard to make an argument against, right? Because it's like, we'll just use it. It's fine. I'm like, okay, it's fine. Like, I mean, it's not going to hurt anything. Right. And it's like the instructions said, okay, fine. But I also anecdotally have never had a problem not using the filter. So it's thankfully seems like a rare occurrence of the fat embolizer thing. Um, let's talk about our favorite toxicity for sweet things and candy, chocolate. Um, so there is a category of toxins, methylxanthines. I'm sure you guys have heard that word before. Um, they are alkaloids. They include theobromine and caffeine, um, both of which are contained in chocolate or our favorite, which is the chocolate-covered espresso bean toxicity. I'm sure you guys have seen that before with dogs. That's always fun. We, we see a lot of THC with caffeine and um, chocolate. Oh, that's like the hippie speedball toxicity. That's interesting. <laughs> yeah. I believe that. that is, is that Denver? Is that Denver seeing? seeing yeah. That? Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, you guys are the pioneers <laughs> in that toxicity. You got it, girl. <laughs> yeah, in California, California too. Like, I mean, I feel like we see THC toxicity probably once a week, maybe more. Um, most of them do just fine. Um, so what the, what the methylxanthines will do, uh, so what they do is they have CNS stimulation. Um, we all know that it's tachycardia that we'll see. Um, it increases contractility of cardiac muscle. Um, do we know where this toxin is eliminated? How do we get rid of this toxin in our bodies? It's the bladder. Yeah. So we, it's eliminated in the urine. Um, it also is eliminated in bile. Um, so entrohepatic recirculation is a thing. That was something I didn't think about um, the first time that uh, that, I, that I was reading about this, but there, that is a factor. That is a factor of it. Like, oh, do we know the other toxin that hammers on us from enterohepatic circulation? Oh, this is a good one. I think we might get to it today. What's the other toxin that like you have to drain gallbladders to get rid of it? I have no idea. Oh, good one. Okay, I'll give you a hint. It grows in the woods. Sometimes in cow pies. Mushrooms? Oh, mushrooms? Yes, 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 yes. Very good, mm -hmm. very good. And there's a specific one, Amanita mushrooms, which are the death caps. Those are the ones that those toxins, um, they, the, the problem with them is that they stay in your enterohepatic circulation so that when you're reusing the bile salts in your gallbladder, those things are just going through your system, hammering on your liver every single time it recirculates. And so um, cholecystesis, draining the gallbladder is a therapeutic method to get rid of amanita toxins in humans, in people. Careful when you Google image that. Um, so that total sidebar. Well, I think there's another, I think I've got a little bit of Amanita toxin stuff in here too, but so back to our methylxanthines. Um, so Halloween and Easter, this is obviously a seasonal one. I feel like we see it a lot during the holidays that they're going to eat a large, a, a whole bunch of chocolate at home. Um, 
it also the CNS stimulation. So I've got this little this little note in here about the pathophysiology of it. It's worth reviewing. Um, it increases the movement of calcium into cells and it blocks adenosine receptors. So the movement of the calcium around that's what's causing the CNS stimulation and increasing free calcium, and therefore your your contractility is increasing in skeletal and, and cardiac muscle. Um, the clinical signs, and I know that you guys know what the clinical signs are for the chocolate toxicity because we see the like the little they're shaking, they've got the high heart rate, they seem restless. Um, it's kind of like when you've had a venti coffee at Starbucks and haven't eaten anything, you're like me. Um, they're also unlike people, they're less able to metabolize these in an in an efficient way. So that's why they they develop this this toxicity. Now, I had a vet tell me once that he has never ever seen a die a, a dog die of chocolate ingestion. Has anyone ever seen a dog die of chocolate ingestion? No? Yeah. Yes. No. Oh, yeah, there was a yes out there. Yes, I have. It was Aha. one of my cases, actually. One of my re reports that I sent in. Oh, well done. And what type of chocolate did that dog eat? It ate night or it was dark chocolate. It was a family size bag of M&Ms um, up to 19 ounces. Wow. And it had consumed them from the child's bedroom over a lengthy period, anywhere from like six to possibly 24 hour time period. Wow. So, and then was it a small dog? Yeah, it was six kids. And oh, uh, yeah. it came in the next day uh, severely hyperthermic. So mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. we treated the hypothermia, put a urinary catheter in, did everything that we needed to do to try to treat the toxicity but it was way beyond um, lethal dose for that patient. Wow, isn't that something? Yeah, see, and I saw a dog at my very, very first job. It was a big black lab that had eaten four, four whole bars of Baker's chocolate and like came in in a coma. And we had that dog in the hospital for like 10 days and he did go home, but that dog was like clinical for that chocolate ingestion. So I don't know. I feel like it's rare. It's going to be rare that you see a death from uh, methylxanthines, but I'm going to go ahead and say that it's a possibility. So that's why we keep them in the hospital. Um, and that's a good word too, methylxanthines. You're going to see that word come up a couple times. And um, it's good to remember like which drugs are involved in there and that they're alkaloids. Um, the methylxanthine alkaloid thing, I think as you're doing your reading, that you'll see that come up a couple times. Like the, the toxicology people, they love to categorize stuff. And so that's one of them. Uh, here we go. Xylitol. We talked about this a little bit. Um, xylitol is kind of a fun one to treat, I think, actually. Because like, you know, they, they can be either bouncing around looking great, or they can be completely flat comatose, depending on what's going on. Um, this is the one that we talked about that the absorption is too rapid. Uh, for us, for us to administer charcoal, for that to be effective, um, the peak plasma concentration of xylitol happens 30 minutes after ingestion. So, if you've got a dog that comes to you in a comatose state that's hypoglycemic, you can you can guess that you know it could be as recently as like half an hour to an hour that they've ingested this stuff. Um, they can also have a hepatotoxicity that can happen with this. It can sometimes happen without hypoglycemia, which is terrifying, um, that their liver values will go up and up and up. Um, the dextrose administration that we do for these dogs, even if they're not hypoglycemic, 
we're going to put these dogs on dextrose because it's a risk. It's going to be a risk for like that first 24, 48 hours that they could become hypoglycemic. Um, of course, if they're like BAR and eating really well, just give them like small meatballs. The dog's going to love you forever. Like it's just going to be on a, on a, on a IV fluid dextrose vacation, getting little snacks all the time. And he's like, this is the best thing ever. I'm going to eat gum out of a purse every day. This is fabulous. Um, <laughs> The amount of xylitol can make a difference. Um, there, it sometimes will vary. Like, you know, I feel like there was a poodle that we treated at my first job that had eaten like a one piece of Orbitz gum and was like flat, flat, flat BG of 24. And then there was a chihuahua that we saw like two weeks later had eaten an entire like package of the same gum and that dog's blood glucose was like in the 70s and it was like hello how are you i like to eat gum like looking fine so it's some i found like anecdotally in my own experience that it can make a difference like that sometimes dogs will have an like uh, a skewed reaction as to what it is but then i now know that part of why that is, is because certain types of gum have certain amounts of xylitol in them. So when you have these cases that come into the hospital, it is often um, it, the best thing that the owner can do is call poison control and start a case number um, because they have all of the information on all the various types of gum. And some of them are way worse than others. Like Trident is not as much of a problem as like the Orbitz ice cubes in the plastic container. Like those are like super bad. And then every now and then you'll get a real weird one where it's like some diet powder that like is supposed to suppress appetite. And it's like just pure xylitol in packages. And if dogs eat that, then that's a big problem. Also, people are baking with xylitol more and more. And so those baked foods are going to be more toxic. Word up. And you know, the other thing, like, thank you, xylitol industry for this, is that peanut butter that they're making that's flavored with the xylitol. That's like the low carb peanut butter. So people are like, here, doggy, have your morning pills. And they freaking give them a big old spoonful of xylitol peanut butter. Like, thank you, xylitol industry for that. Um, So the other thing to think about with these guys, too, is that because they're Uh, Because they've got this dumping out of their insulin, um, they can also suffer from, uh, there's a a hypokalemia that they can suffer because of their increased insulin and also a hypophosphatemia. Now, I've never seen that before. Um, I've certainly seen animals that are having seizures because of uh, hypoglycemia. I don't know that I've ever tracked a hypophosphatemia, but now that I see this on the back of my little card, I'm going to see if I can track that because I, we see these, I don't know how, do you guys see these fairly often in your clinics? I feel like we see one like once a week. Yeah. We see them all the time. As a, not, not that common. Oh, that's good. I mean, because they're, I mean, they're interesting cases to treat, but they can also be kind of annoying because you're just like, oh my God, dog, like why? Why did you do that? Why? Or why, human? Why? Why did it? And there's repeat offenders. Like there's dogs that come in like more than once for, for eating xylitol. Um, they're good ones though for, uh, for skills stuff, you know, if these xylitol guys are coming in because, you know, if they're super comatose and like, you know, then I feel like it's, it's a good practice of giving IV infusions of dextrose. It's a good, good skills for doing advanced vascular access because all these guys will usually get some kind of sampling catheter, you know, whether that's a central line or whether that's one of those single lumen little pick lines that we do. Um, so these ones can be kind of interesting to, to manage as well. Um, the hepatotoxic effects... Um, that's a big bummer when that starts to happen. They usually have to have their liver values rechecked 
repeatedly from that. Um, luckily, it's I feel like a death from these. It's not something that I have seen. I've seen dogs come in super, super clinical, um, but I have. I don't think that we've had one that's actually been deceased in recent memory. The one that I can remember was the most sick was the one that ate the diet powder, like ate like four packets of this pure xylitol diet powder and came in seizing and terrible. Um, so let's see. Let's let's look at another couple things here that are toxins without charcoal indication. So the two that we have so far, um, this one, the xylitol one, we also are without charcoal indication for xylitol because it absorbs so quickly. Um, what's another one that's not indicated for, uh, for charcoal administration? Zinc. Zinc. Very good. And zinc because it's a metal um, metals are not something that you can treat with, uh, with charcoal administration. So very good. Um, the other one that I have written in this little list is salt, that a salt toxicity mm -hmm. is not effective for absorb absorption for charcoal. Now you guys will have to school me because I can't remember why that is, but there's, there's a good homework assignment is to see why it is that the salt is not a good one. Um, salt toxicity is something that, uh, you know, the, the Play-Doh ingestion is a really good one. I feel like because that's such a huge salt content in that stuff. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? This homemade stuff? Yeah, homemade Play-Doh. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, ingestion of a lot of seawater, I suppose, could do that too. There was a dumb, dumb boxer that like ate an, an entire container of like iodized salts. I remember that came into one of our <laughs> clinics, which is just like dummy, dumb, dumb. Um, so IV fluids, obviously. Um, emesis, you can induce emesis for this if they've got, if, especially if it's something like that Play-Doh stuff where you know you're going to get it up out of their system. Um, uh, now we get to go into the super exciting bits of lowering sodium. So you guys have probably already gotten into this a little bit about lowering sodium too quickly or like raising sodium too, quick, too quickly. Does this sound kind of familiar? Yep. Very good. Cerebral edema. There you go. That's exactly right. So that can happen. Um, the uh, there is a little bit of a formula to 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 not lower sodium too quickly, which is you don't want to lower it faster than 0.5 to one milliequivalent per liter per hour. Um, and you'll you'll see this when you go into your. Um, uh, when you're going into your formulas and getting your formulas all in your head about lowering and adjusting, lowering or raising, adjusting sodium, um, that that factor will become a thing. You don't want it to be faster than 0.5 to 1 milliequivalent per liter per hour. Uh, we talked about the cerebral edema. Very good. Oh, this is an exciting one. So mycotoxins, not the, not the amanita. That one, that, that's a separate thing. But there is a mycotoxin that you can get from like, say, eating compost, that kind of thing. Have you guys yeah. seen this one? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Nasty. That's nasty, Poochie. Why wow, you got to be eating the compost? So I loved that there, are two, there were two main um, mycotoxins that I found that, that were, I think, in the Silverstein and Hopper. One of them is Penetram A, which is produced by, uh, pe by penicillium. And then the other one is called Roque 14. Isn't that great? Like Roquefort cheese? I thought that was amazing. Um, and that's a penicillium Roqueforti is the name of that, of that particular mycotoxin. Um, so this one, oh, this is interesting. So we talked about the amanita having the enterohepatic circulation. Well, look at that. This mycotoxin also has that. So it's absorbed and excreted in the bile. So that's why the enterohepatic recirculation can be a thing. Um, this one also an alkaloid. 
uh, and it does cross the blood brain barrier. So that's why it affects your neurotransmitters. And that's why you get the little shaking around and the tremors. Um, this one, the treatment does have uh, charcoal. You can do that. You can also treat the hyperthermia. And then there was the drug that someone had mentioned earlier, very astutely for the flea toxicity, which is methocarbamol, because that will help you with your, with your muscle tremors. Now, rhododendron and azaleas. Let's see what I said about that, because boy, do I not remember anything about this. <laughs> Rhododendrons and azaleas. Okay, I do remember this. So there's this weird thing called grayanotoxins. Y'all ever heard of that? No. Yeah, no, there's a reason why, because it doesn't happen very often. So the, the rhododendron and azaleas came up for this particular reason. There's something called grayanotoxins. I'm sure this is in the Silverstein hopper. Um, this is one that delays repolarization of your ventricle muscle fibers. So you can get these cardiovascular signs like hypertension or bradycardia. Um, and the atropine can be treatment for the bradycardia that you can see with those. So rhododendron and azaleas, heart problems. Here's another fun one, castor bean plant. Um, so castor oil, if it's properly extracted, is safe because um, the toxin is destroyed by like a moist heat. But if the bean stays whole, and I think that this can happen when you have like ornamental stuff in your garden, they have these castor beans. If the bean is whole when it's eaten, um, uh, oh, that's right. If the bean stays whole and you eat it, you're not releasing anything. So it's kind of just like swallowing a marble, basically. But if you break open that castor bean, then that contains a toxin that's called ricin. Do you remember ricin when there were envelopes of ricin being sent around to like the FBI or something? That was like in the early 2000s. Do you remember that? Mm -hmm. So that comes from this castor bean. So castor bean plant can cause a ricin toxicity. Awful GI signs, awful hepatic failure. It's super, super toxic. If you have a dog that has castor bean ingestion possibility, those are the couple factors that you're going to want to know. Like, is it pooping out whole beans? Did it chew the beans? Because that's going to make a big difference. Um, ooh, cardiac glycosides. Okay. So you guys have had pharmacology already. Is that right? Yes. Very good. So give me an example of a cardiac glycoside. Uh, digitalis? Yes! Yes! That is exactly right. Oh, I love yeah. it. You guys remember that stuff. Yes. So digoxin, that's exactly right. So there's a couple um, plants out there that have this, the foxglove, lily of the valley, oleander. Um, so it causes these electrolyte disturbances across cell walls is what it does. Um, it, it increases uh, your contractility. That's how digoxin works. Now, like, like I'm sure you remember, there is a very narrow therapeutic window. So that means that you have to be really careful about the dose that you're using because you can cause arrhythmias by using this drug. Um, this one you can treat with charcoal. Uh, you can treat with IV fluids. Now, another thing that can happen is that um, but with the electrolyte disturbances, it can increase uh, sodium exchange for calcium. So your calcium can uh, can go high. Your calcium can can go can go up um, when you have too much of this drug. So the IV fluids will usually help lower your calcium. 
Um, what else can I say about cardio, cardio, cardiac glycosides? Oh, so the oleander thing that I remember was actually not a veterinary case, but it was a human case. There were these kids in Florida and they were like camping and they had, they found this, like they went to roast marshmallows over the fire. So they went and they went to this like bush that had all these like bare branches on it and they ripped branches off of the bush and then used that to, um, roast their marshmallows over the fire and it was a freaking oleander and they died. So it can be serious. It can be a serious thing. Good job remembering that digoxin though. That's awesome. Let's see. We got autumn crocus, another oddball one that's in here. Oh, let's see if we care about this one. Nope. Don't think I do. I feel like the back of this autumn crocus card. I'm sure that this is going to be in your, in your reading somewhere because I obviously wrote it down. Um, but this one can, I think that, I think this one comes up because it can have the same signs as snail bait toxicity. So slud, vomiting, diarrhea, um, slud mean, we all remember what slud stands for, right? No. Oh, good. Okay. Well, there is a reason that autumn crocus is here. Um, so slud is a way of, uh, saying salivation, lacrimation, urination, and defecation. So that's when you have, uh, it's a, it's a sympathetic, ooh, parasympathetic inhibitor, right? No, parasympathetic is happening. That's what it is. Too much parasympathetic. Um, so slud is what causes, that's the word that we use for snail bait toxicities when you see those signs of the salivation, lacrimation, urination, defecation. Um, so there you go. That was the point of Autumn Crocus being in there. Thank you, Autumn Crocus. So now let's talk about ethylene glycol. I think we can probably just like, uh, I think we'll probably like close out with the ethylene glycol thing because this one is a really interesting one. So who was saying that they didn't see a lot of ethylene glycol? Was that Kate maybe? Have you guys treated ethylene glycol cases in your clinics? Yes. Yeah. Oh. I lost a case a few months ago. You lost one a couple months ago. Yep. Yeah, it can be really, really serious. Now, I think that they're getting better about um, making it not be as, as sweet of a taste. Like it used to be that it had this really sweet taste to it, but because children were prone to ingest it for that reason, they've changed it now. So it's like now I think it actually tastes really bad. Um, so who can tell me? Oh, it's going to get hard. Who can, well, since you treated one recently, right? Who's it? Who treated one? Is that Nan? Is that you? I did. Yeah. Okay. Can you tell me what happens? Like why, why is it toxic? Well, so the kidneys become, um, crystallized. And, um, I feel like the mothership is trying to contact us as you're trying to explain that. Do you hear it? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, I heard you say crystal so, kidneys. Very good. Right. And then they become more and more intoxicated because the kidneys can't pass out the ethylene glycol. Right. And then they uh, die. That's, that's right. What, that's what we did. It was that's sad. right. So how do those crystals form? Uh-huh. surface, but I don't, I don't know why. Yeah. Oh, very good. Well, I, I am here to tell you why. So there is, and did you guys treat it with fomipazole or with, uh, with alcohol? We would have, but he was so sick oh, and his yeah. kidney already showing the halo sign. Oh God. Yeah. 
we don't have diuresis or um dialysis dialysis yeah 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 and so he was so sick that the owners elected to euthanize we'd only oh. had him for an hour the last one that I, I mean, really the only clinical one that I've seen, identical phenomenon. Like it was so sick. And we even called UC Davis and UC Davis is like, nope, we don't want that one. They were like, poor candidate because dialysis will not save that dog. Um, so there's a there's a really interesting mechanism that happens with uh, with ethylene glycol. So what happens is um, there you're forming these uh, you're for, you're forming things in your bloodstream that aren't supposed to be there. So it's metabolized in the liver. Um, alcohol dehydrogenase converts ethylene glycol to something called glycoaldehyde. So you naturally have in your liver you have something called alcohol dehydrogenase. So it's converting that antifreeze to this thing that's called glycoaldehyde, which then converts to glycolic acid, which then converts to glycoxalate, which becomes oxalate. Now it's starting to sound familiar, right? Because oxalate, oxalate crystals. Yeah. yeah the there you go. The, the oxalate will then combine with calcium and then um, the calcium oxalate crystals are what deposit in your kidneys. So it's a cascade of events that happen where the alcohol dehydrogenase is converting the ethylene glycol into something that the body can't, can't deal with very well. Now, this is the interesting bit. So how does the administration of alcohol work, right? Because it seems really kind of crazy. Like I'm going to give booze to this dog that's going to save its life? Yes. So the reason why so in your liver, this alcohol dehydrogenase that you already have, the alcohol DJ, the problem happens when that dehydrogenase converts the ethylene glycol, right? So what we want to do is we want to stop the dehydrogenase from converting that ethylene glycol. Because if the ethylene glycol is not converted into all those things like the glycolic acid and oxalates, then it'll just pass through your body. It's the conversion that causes a problem. So what we do is we administer something for our alcohol dehydrogenase to bind to before it binds to the ethylene glycol. I call you with me so far. Does that make yes. sense? Cool. So then, what you're doing is you're giving the fomipazole or you're giving the vodka so that al your alcohol dehydrogenase, which is hanging out in your liver looking for friends, says, like, Hey, vodka's my friend. I'll go over here. And so it binds with what you give so that then that ethylene glycol doesn't convert, doesn't become oxalate, which then combines with calcium, doesn't turn into oxalate crystals, and just passes right on through your body. Isn't that cool? <laughs> it's amazing. Um, so the, the, the clinical signs that, uh, that you guys saw with your poor dog, it sounds like it was already depressed and ataxic and looking terrible, huh? Yeah, it was really bad. And yeah. it was like a one-year-old German Shepherd. Of course it was. Yeah, of course it was. Like a young dog that did something stupid, right? That was the one that we saw. It was like a, like a three-year-old male intact husky that had wandered around an automotive um, like uh, like a, a closed automotive garage and had sucked up a bunch of ethylene glycol. Um, so the things that you can imagine will happen, depressed, very toxic, PUPD, um, there's an acidosis, all the things with kidney failure, right? So acidosis, they're tachycardic from fluid loss, seizures, we can see seizures that will happen with these guys. Now, because the calcium is binding to the oxalate, you can also see a hypocalcemia. 
Um, this is a great place. We won't go too far into it because you guys are coming up to it when you get to electrolytes, but this is where you'll see that anion gap is going to make a difference. Now, the anion gap is a value that we see on all of our like CG4 cartridges, and it's kind of hard to it's it's kind of hard to use it in a way that makes sense for our world, but this is the moment. This is the anion gaps moment, is the ethylene glycol toxicity. Because the anion gap is the difference between, it's like calculating for known um, cations and anions, like ones that are supposed to be there. But if you have these ions that are not supposed to be there, then that gap starts to increase. And because you've got this ethylene glycol toxicity happening and all this glycolic acid that's in there, you'll start to see anions that are in the bloodstream that are not necessarily normally there. And that's when you'll see that gap will start to widen. Because all of a sudden, the ones that are known and not known, oh, there's all this stuff in between. What's all this stuff? So remember ethylene glycol when you get to anion gap. That helped me kind of understand what that was for. Uh, let's see here. Treatment for ethylene glycol toxicity. Boy, we hit on it just a little bit because you were talking about dialysis and we talked about the ethanol. Um, yeah, so it competes. The ethanol is competing at the active site for the alcohol dehydrogenase. Now you guys will impress your friends knowing how that works. I feel like it's one of the cooler things that we do is administer that for ethylene glycol toxicities. Um, fomipazole is, uh, is one, it's a weird drug. I find that if you don't use it very quickly, it evaporates because it's like, it's so high in the like it's just it's just it's so high in ethanol that it, like if you don't use it it's got a limited amount of time you can keep it in the hospital um this uh the fomipazole's actual word is like like what it actually is is four dash methopyrazole um i've never i feel like i don't see that very often usually you'll just see it by the brand name fomipazole um and you don't want to use it concurrently with ethanol because it's going to do the job for you so you either use one or the other uh, let's see here. Zinc toxicity. Uh, this is the heavy metals, right? So this is the one that the charcoal doesn't work for. Um, zinc is another one that accumulates in the liver. Uh, it damages your red blood cell membranes and it causes oxidative damage. So you'll see an anemia with this. You'll see an intravascular hemolysis with this. Um, usually the treatment for zinc toxicity is to get rid of the source of it. Um, who knows the number one source that we'll probably see for zinc toxicity? Pennies minted after 1983. You got it, girl. That's exactly right. So we, so you take an x-ray, right? Take an x-ray. Where's the freaking penny? And if you get the penny out, that's going to, that's going to help you. Uh, let's see here. Oh, rodenticides. We should cover this before we end. Thank you guys for sticking with this. Apparently I had more to say. See, I told you, I told you I was going to go along with the toxins. I love the toxins. Um, so anticoagulant rodenticide, that's a thing. There's first generation and second generation. Um, this is the one that, the anticoagulant rodenticide is the one that we treat with vitamin K. Uh, this is the one that inhibits the production of the enzyme, um, vitamin K epoxide reductase. And what it means is it can't be regenerated and it can't be recycled. We actually recycle that enzyme in our bodies. And what this particular rodenticide will do is it prevents that from happening. Now, here's a, VT here's a good VTS question. Who knows? I'll be so impressed if you guys get some of these. Which factors, which COAC factors are affected from rodenticide vitamin K reductase? inhibition. Oh, I guarantee you're going to have to know what these are. <laughs> Poor 
bastards. <laughs> so what they are, I'll tell you what they are, and then we'll try to figure out a way to remember. So the vitamin K dependent coag, coag factors are two, seven, nine, and 10. Now, I feel like I could remember nine and 10. That's easy because they're sequential. Nine and 10, two and seven. So seven is like kind of an odd number. So we'll go with that. Seven, nine, odd numbers, 10, nine and 10. Okay, that's sequential. So seven, nine and 10. And then we just have to remember two. So that's a tricky bit. I don't remember how I remember two. I might've just had to memorize that. But yeah, two, seven, nine and 10. Those are the ones. Um, your prothrombin uh, your the prothrombin pathway, the extrinsic pack, pathway is affected first. So if you know, like, let's say, you know, you ha only have enough blood sample to run one aspect of your PT and PTT, and you're pretty sure that it's a rodenticide toxicity, test the PT first. Um, cause that's the one that's going to be affected first. Um, treatment, oral vitamin K, you can do charcoal. And of course, if you're having coagulation if, uh, issues, fresh frozen plasma. Sometimes if they're really bleeding out, then you can use, um, you'll ha they'll have to require a, a blood transfusion. And these are ones I'm sure you guys have treated in the hospital before. Yeah, these were denticide guys. Uh, let's see here. There is also um, something to, to also that we will that you'll see come up as well is um, first generation and second generation um, anticoagulant rodenticides. Um, the first generation warfarin, uh, it's, it, it, it's treatment with vitamin K for 14 days, but the second generation, it's a newer one. It's the one that's brod. I'm probably gonna mispronounce this, brodificum or brodificum. Am I saying that right? Who knows how to say that word? <laughs> I'm sure you've seen it before though. Um, they're the newer ones. They require vitamin K for 30 days. And with that one, the toxic dose of the first generation is about 0.5 mix per kg. The toxic dose for the second generation, which is the newer stuff, is 0.02 mix per kg. Um, so sometimes it's, it, if you've got, like if someone comes in thinking their dog ate something, bring the box. This is a big one of bring the box so we know what generation it is. So we're able to treat it properly. Uh, bromethylene rodenticide. That's another type of rodenticide. This is the one that has the neuro signs. Um, so this is the one that's the uh, tremors, seizures, hyperthermia. This one, you have to really kind of aggressively decontaminate them. And it actually, I remember... Um, there's this, uh, the group on online, that's the vet girl, which is run by the toxicologist. Um, she says that you can see sometimes, uh, this type of rat, this, this type of, of bromethylene rodenticide, if it's in pellets will sometimes show up on x-rays, like snail bait will sometimes show up on x-rays. So she'll often with her toxic, with her toxin cases, take one lateral x-ray to see if she sees anything show up in the stomach. Uh, but this is the one that you that you treat like a snail bait toxicity. They're going to have tremors, seizures. Because of that, they'll have hypothermia. Um, it can also cause uh, cerebral edema. Um, so increased intracranial pressure can happen as well. Um, repeat doses of charcoal are indicated with these guys. And of course, if they've got the cerebral edema, then oxygen, mannitol, elevating their head. This relates to all the stuff we talked about last week, which is great. So that's, that's another one. Uh, let's see, guys. I'm going to take these last, I'll say these last like couple minutes to kind of sift through some of the ones. We talked about intralipid therapy. That's great. 
Um, ooh, let's talk just briefly about cholecalciferol. So that's the vitamin D toxicosis that we see. Um, who can tell me um, what the two, uh, the two types, the, what can I say? The two electrolytes, I guess is what it is. The two, the, um, the two values that will go up when we see uh, cholecalciferol ingestion. The, shoot, it's the calcium, yep, right? Yep, yep, 100%. There's another one. What else do, what, what else was related to calcium in your bones? I'll give you a hint. It usually would go down if your calcium goes up, but in this case, it goes up. It's phosphate, Ta-da! calcium and phosphorus, right? Because those are the two things that have to do with our bones. So what happens with, um, with cholecalciferol is that it increases your absorption of phosphorus in your small intestine. So that goes up and then your calcium also goes up, which is weird because usually that's an inverse relationship between those two values. But with vitamin D toxicosis, they both go up. Uh, so this one, they can have, I mean, in extreme cases, they can have like calcification that will happen in their tissues, um, but arrhythmias can happen. Um, you can give a treatment of, uh, there's, a, there's a biphosphonate that you can give. I think it's called pamadronate, I think is what it is. Have you guys heard that before? For hypercalcemia? Sometimes cancer patients will get this one. Um, but it's worth looking up the biphosphonates that you can give intravenously in case the calcium is going way, way, way up. Um, it usually is in jet, like usually what you're seeing is like a, a dog that's eaten way too much of its, uh, way too much of its supplement is usually what you'll see. But there is a rodenticide uh, that's a, that's a cholecalciferol as well. I've certainly never seen that. I think it's a really old school one. Um, but the vitamin D toxicosis that I've seen have been animals that have just like eaten the entire pill bottle. That's usually what it is. This one is repeated right. doses of charcoal. That's okay. Um, and well, also is really popular here for rat bait. Oh, is it really? We see it more than the anticoagulant one or bromethylene. Oh, oh, really? That's interesting. So maybe it's regional. Yeah. I mean, California, we don't really see it that much, but that is interesting. Have you had one that you've treated in the hospital? Yeah, lots. We see that way more than any other rabbit. Wow. See, that is cool. And have you given this drug, this pamadronate, this biphosphonate to try to... Yeah, we, we have to fight a lot of other hospitals or CSU to get it. We don't have it all the time, but... We have gotcha. to fight for it and like, hey, we need the pomidronate. And they're like, no, we need it. We have a case. And so it's like, oh, that's it's hard so to get. Interesting. So everybody wants it. That's why it's hard to get mm -hmm. to. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I find that most, um, most hospitals that have an oncology department will have that drug because, you know, hypercalcemia can be a thing that the oncology patients will see. Yeah. We don't, we have oncology, radonc and medonc, and we don't have it. Often wow. That's because everybody wants to use it. That's because you guys are seeing it so often. Oh, that's kind of a cool thing. Um, there's another type of rosenticide too, which is the zinc phosphate. Zinc phosphide. This is the one I feel like y'all learned about in tech school. Like don't make the dog barf inside because it'll kill you all with phosphine gas. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> 
this is like the, it's a gopher bait is, is what I remember learning when I was in tech school. Thank God they've pretty much outlawed this in the counties that I live in. So you don't really see it. But what happens is, is they eat this zinc phosphide um, in acidic conditions, such as your stomach, this turns into phosphine gas. And so if you induce emesis in these dogs that have eaten this toxin, they have to be outside because if you're inside and the dog barfs, you got a freaking gas toxic situation in the hospital. It's going to clear the hospital. Smells like rotten fish. It's also interesting to note that this type of gas is heavier than air so that it's going to be like at knee level. So you may not smell it as much when you're, um, when you're standing above the dog, but if you go to clean up the barf, all of a sudden your face is gonna be like right in the middle of all that phosphine gas. So use with caution. Um, I've certainly never seen it before. I know that we had a dog that we thought may have eaten it. It ended up not being what it was, um, but the emesis had to be outside. If you can smell it, it's toxic. So just careful um, if you've got these dogs that you're suspicious that they've eaten this stuff, but luckily it doesn't happen that often. Um, I think that the other thing is worth talking about. Oh, here's my, oh, I found it. My pomidronate. Here it is. Let's see if there's anything else we forgot. Nope. We covered it all. Well done, kids. Um, serotonin syndrome. Who knows what serotonin syndrome is? I feel like serotonin syndrome is something that I have not seen in my clinical practice. Um, but it, it, it is something that will come up in your VTS studying. Now, what I have in my cards here, I feel like, I feel I would, I would look up serotonin syndrome guys, honestly, because I can, I, I tell you what, I did not study serotonin syndrome as much as I should have before I took that exam. And I feel like it totally came up. Um, most of the time what we see with serotonin syndrome is from antidepressant ingestion. That's like the kind of toxic things, excess, um, serotonergic agonism of your central nervous system, um, can cause instability in your system. It can cause lethargy that then progresses to being really restless and irritated. It can cause you to be hyperthermic, ataxic, tremors, seizures, GI signs. So Serotonin syndrome is something that you don't see very often, but when you do see it, it's got these very specific treatment options. And I think that's why the VTS board wants you to know what it is. So support for the GI signs for sure. Um, most of these drugs are protein bound. So you can do IV fluids, but the diuresis doesn't necessarily help that much because those drugs are bound to the protein. So because of the serotonin, the serotonin syndrome is like a catecholamine release. And so you're going to use some beta blockers for that. Um, you're going to use serotonin receptor antagonists. Ooh, there's something from pharmacology, right? So these five, now it's going to start sounding familiar, 5-HT receptor antagonists. Do you guys remember what one of those drugs is? It's a weird one. We don't use very often. Ciproheptadine? Yes. Oh, good job, girl. I guarantee you that's going to come up. Yes, ciproheptadine. VTS board and experts want you to know that ciproheptadine is a 5-HT receptor antagonist and can be used for serotonin syndrome. There's another one, chlorpromazine. That's not one that I've used before, but that's another one that's a, that's a 5-HT receptor antagonist. Um, you can also use intralipids um, for, serotonin, for serotonin syndrome treatment. 
um, because those because most of those drugs are are protein bound, so it'll help with that. Uh, yeah, the the antidepressant ingestion tends to be when we tends to be when we see it. You can also because of the um, the like cardiac signs that you can have from some of that propanolol is something else. That you, oh, propanolol is the beta blocker. That's what it is. So the beta blocker for the catecholamine release, like the t- tachycardia and the hypertension, you can use propanolol for that. Oh, guys, I'm glad I found these cards. I feel like I did not study this enough. I, I am imparting I am imparting this wisdom to you. Study serotonin syndrome. <laughs> it's going to be a thing. Uh, some drugs that can cause it. Amphetamines can cause it. Um, MDMA can cause it. Cocaine. Um, tramadol and methadone. Um, tramadol and trazodone used together. Um, is a serotonin syndrome risk because they're both kind of hammering on that. Um, And I've written on there twice that they're protein bound. So that must tell you something. All right, guys. Well, I tell you what, we've gone on for for almost two hours, which I feel like is more time than I, way more time than I thought I was going to, but there was just a lot to cover. So are there, are there questions that you guys have about any kind of toxin stuff that we've talked about or things that you feel like we need to we need to chat about and cover i thank you guys for sticking with me for as long as you have i feel like that's wonderful you guys have been paying attention this long nothing specific eh no yeah i mean i think that that's okay i feel like you know we covered a lot of the basic the the basic things um it's worth looking up. I don't think. I'll, I don't think it's. We don't necessarily have to t- take the time in this particular meeting to talk about it now. But I do think it's a good idea to review um, uh, dialysis when you're talking about toxicities. Uh, there's, you know, extracorporeal therapy, which is ECT, when your blood is removed and then treated and processed and returned back to you. Um, a lot of times there's the protein bound toxins that will be, that, that those patients will be candidate for that type of therapy. Um, there's continuous renal replacement therapy, right? The CRRT. Um, oh, that one too, large, mo- large molecules. So protein bound toxins can be, can be gotten rid of by doing that as well. So I do think it's a good idea to review the, um, to review the dialysis and extracorporeal therapies, even though you may not have them at their hospital. Who has dialysis at their hospital out of all of us here? Nobody? Not me. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> Me neither. It is way not something that we do. UC Davis is the closest place that does it to us. Um, one of my one of my good friends, who's a criticalist in New York, she moved to New York and is now running the dialysis program at a hospital that's over there. But that's my closest connection to it. That and the VTS exam. That's my connection to dialysis. That's about it. Um, so it is worth. It is definitely worth reviewing some of those. Now we didn't really we didn't really talk about NSAID toxicity, um, mostly because I felt like out of all the things, like we probably have treated carprofen toxicities the most. Am I right? Am I right? Yeah. Like a fairly common thing, right? But here's what I can tell you about the uh, about the NSAIDs. Um, I know you guys have already done your pharmacology section, so you've already done a lot of studying. Um, of, of NSAID toxicities, or I mean of, of NSAID and how the drug works, it's just a good idea to review how NSAIDs work in your body um, so that you know why the toxicity is such a concern, like that they constrict the vessels in your kidneys, right? And that's why it can be cause kidney problems. Like all those little things about the drug that in extreme circumstances when they have a high amount of it, 
uh, can cause problems. So I would definitely review the NSAIDs. We don't necessarily have to do it today because I feel like we see it a lot, but even so. Um, naloxone, you guys carry naloxone in your clinics? Yes. Okay, perfect. So we've all used that drug. That's the lifesaver, right? And there is a lot of talk about it in the human medicine world right now, right? Saying that cops should carry it because of the opioid crisis. Um, good to know naloxone. It does have a, it's also good to note short duration of action. They may need repeat dosing because oftentimes the opioid agents that we're using have a longer effect in the body than the naloxone does. So knowing that repeat dosing can be something that you may have to do for the guys who have the opiate toxicities. Uh, let's see here, kids. I think that, I think that's maybe as far as we'll go. I feel like there are some homework assignments for you, right? <laughs> kind of review serotonin syndrome and, uh, extracorporeal therapy, the extracorporeal therapy guys. I mean, I, it's not something that I have a daily experience with. And so that was something that I, I took, I had to take a little bit more time to study because it's just not something that I see every day. Uh, and the machines are complicated and there's lots of different types of it. So that's just something that you guys will cover in your reading. Yeah, two hours worth of that, you guys. You paid attention the whole time. I'm so proud of you. You knew all the inf you knew a lot of answers, guys. You're doing really, really well. I feel like the people that I, and I've only done two of these, and I feel like the people that like you guys who have attended both of these, um, I, I feel like you're you're on the right path because like you're like I'm asking you questions that I haven't looked at for like a year that I'm having trouble remembering and you guys are right there and have even if you don't get the exact words of it you're getting really really close so I feel like you're you're doing great you're doing your reading whatever you're doing is working don't get discouraged by being too behind I feel like I was routinely two weeks behind I think I said that the last time that we had this study session. Um, and as long as you just keep plugging away at it, just leave yourself time for some review in the last couple of weeks. That's like, that's my biggest, my biggest bit of advice for that, because you'll want time to review. Any troubles, concerns with the studying or any, um, any like tips or tricks to share with, share with us all that you have found helpful? I know people listen to these, which is good. That's cool. Well, the thing from neuro last week with the cranial nerves, your, um, your mnemonic was oh. fine. We found one that was a little bit more um, vulgar, but it definitely stuck with me. Oh my God, um, what is it? You have to tell me. Okay, so it's very vulgar. I'm, Just I'm, I am ready. Th those of you who, who, are, who are not ready for the vulgar, you can mute us now. <laughs> okay. So it's O-O-O, to touch and feel a girl's vagina. Ah, oh, heaven. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. I especially yeah. enjoy the O O O at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you know, if you need a mnemonic, that one definitely stuck with me. Oh, girl. That can can so you awesome. say it again, then? Yeah. Oh, okay. Oh. People with the mute buttons. <laughs> Go okay. for it. O O O to touch and feel a girl's vagina. Ah, heaven. <laughs> it's good. I have to say, it's very good. Oh, and you just reminded me there is one for um, there's one for hypercalcemia. Those of you with your mute buttons, this is another moment to mute. The uh, the causes of hypercalcemia. This is a good closing one, actually. That spells 
There's a clean one and then there's a dirty one, which is hard ion is the clean one, but you drop the eye if it's, if it's the dirty one. For, so for it's hard on and it's all the causes, causes of hypercalcemia. So hyperadrenocorticism, um, uh, Addison's, was it, was, I think is the A. And like oh, renal disease is the R. D for vitamin D. O for like osteoclastic syndrome, and then N is for neoplasia. I think that's all of them. I think I got them all. Um, but the I yeah. was for the eyes for idiopathic, which is a total freaking cop out. That's just somebody trying to make it not dirty, which I thought was useless. So, so there we go. <laughs> Amazing. There we Amazing, right? I know. Getting dirty, y'all. Um, well, thank you guys for for paying attention for that entire time. I will be sure to post it on. Um, on that little pod, podcast webpage because I think that that worked really well. And you guys are always free to message me if you've got questions about things that come up or like things that we've talked about that you went like, oh my God, I totally figured out that thing that we didn't know an answer to. Or like, whoa, Nicole totally said that wrong. And it's actually this, which, which is entirely possible. Um, so just let me know, guys, if I can be of any help to, to you. I feel like you guys are doing a great job and I want to be as encouraging as possible. And I'll see you all in DC, which is very exciting. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you guys so much. Well done. And I'll be back for another one. I'm, I think it's the reproductive. I, th I thought the reproductive one was the next one I was doing, but apparently it was this one. So I'll be back for another reproductive one at some point, guys. All right. Thank happy you. studying. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye, guys.